Hey, hey, all right. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, this is Brian Zimmerman here, executive editor of Jazz's Magazine. Welcome to the Jazz's Last Call, if you're watching along with us on Facebook. And welcome to the Jazz's Backstage Pass podcast, if you're listening in audio format. It is great to have you with us tonight. The theme for tonight's episode is Monk, Thelonious Monk, that is, uh, and more specifically, the announcement of a previously unreleased album by the piano legend that is coming out at the end of this month, July 31st. And here to talk about it is none other than T.S. Monk. He's a drummer. He's an educator. He is a composer. He is the son of Thelonious Monk. Uh, and let me remind you before we get into this thing, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and let people know. Share. Uh, let's make this a real jam session. Let's get people involved. It is Monk, after all. We're celebrating. Uh, so anyway, hey, it's last call. T.S. Monk is here. We're going to be talking all things Monk and specifically this previously unreleased concert recording. So what do you say we go one more round with T.S. Monk? T.S., are you there, brother? Here I am. How are you doing, Hello, man? sir. I'm doing yeah. all right, just like we were talking about earlier. Sheltering in place, hunkering <laughs> down. That's all you can do yeah. right now, man. You got to do it down there in Florida, man. That's exactly right. We've sealed up the door, sealed up the windows, you know. <laughs> We're breathing through filters. It's nuts outside. But it's great to be talking with you. An absolute oh. pleasure. Um, as our viewers know, the first thing we do on the last call, this being the last call, is a little toast. Uh, normally, I'm drinking bourbon or whiskey. I've got the coffee with me tonight. It was one of those days. Um, I've got some iced tea here. There you go. That works, too. So I'll ask you, T.S., who, what, where, when, why are we celebrating with this first class? You know, I'd like to toast the late Jimmy Cobb. Mm. Uh, one of the greatest jazz drummers on one of the greatest jazz recordings that we all know, so what? And the reason is because Jimmy Cobb <laughs> was the first cat to sit. I, I was working with my father okay. in about 1971, right? Okay. And we were playing at a place called Lenny's on the Turnpike up in Massachusetts, <laughs> right? A little club. Beautiful. And I remember, you know, this is this predates Young Lions, you know. This right, was yeah. like this was like 1971, you know. And um, you know, in those days, you know, if you had a little thing going, you know, nobody made a big deal out of it because you weren't you weren't a giant, you know. Right. And Jimmy Cobb, I'll never forget. I mean, because it was a profound moment in my life. I we had finished the set, and I was sitting at the bar, drinking Coca Cola, and Jimmy Cobb comes and sits down next to me. And I say to myself, oh, damn, Jimmy Cobb. And he turned to me and he said, yeah, Monk, you're swinging a little bit. All <laughs> right. Hey. <laughs> you don't know how that charged my battery. Oh, it was I bet, unbelievable man. for Jimmy Cobb to just tell me I was swinging a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> because and he was, was the king of swing, man. Him. That ride symbol from Jim. Because he's one of the most swinging cats Absolutely. ever lived. And so to me, oh, very Jimmy, nice, man. We surely will miss you. Beautiful. To Jimmy Cobb, absolutely the king of swing. Nobody had a ride symbol like that. Um, so to be even remotely as swinging as Jimmy is uh, doing pretty good, T.S. That's what uh, I'm saying. 
<laughs> Very cool. Hey, let me remind people again, watching, um, feel free. Let us know where you're watching from. Say hello to TS. Let us know about your favorite Monk album. Share a story about Monk, whatever you want to do. Again, this is your jam session. Feel free to write in. Um, and yeah, ask a question for TS. Sure. Well, like you know, We're I'm sheltering at home. People. He's helping at home. You know, we're talking and <laughs> yeah. we are going to be talking about a previously unreleased Monk yeah. album. So, yeah. uh, hey, by the way, if you're, I guarantee people watching are going to want to listen to this album. Yeah. And that is where Cambridge Audio comes in. If I may just thank a sponsor for a minute. They are makers of some of the finest audio equipment in the world. Check out their incredibly stylish premium Alva TT, the world's first Bluetooth APTX HD turntable that lets you put the turntable anywhere in the room. More info is available at cambridgeaudio.com all right hey ts let's get into this one. yeah let's new talk. album coming july 31st yeah. okay we'll start with the the nuts and bolts yeah when was this thing recorded and where it was recorded in 1968 in palo alto california at uh palo alto high school wow and, uh, oh yeah man it was it Thelonious <clears throat> had been working down in San Francisco. Okay. And uh, he got a call from this. He, he first got a letter from this 15-year-old kid, right? <laughs> named Danny wow. Cheer. And then he got a phone call from him uh, asking him to come to Palo Alto. And it was kind of a, a bit of a fundraiser for a movement that was going on in Palo Alto. In East, I think it was East Palo Alto at the time. Uh, they wanted to rename it Nairobi. You right. know, it was a very tumultuous time. Yeah, 68, sure. Uh, civil rights was on everyone's mind. And uh, this young kid, he he concluded that he'd like to bring a major African-American to Palo Alto. You know, Monk had been on the cover of Time magazine. Right. So I think a lot of uh, at least intellectual white uh, America uh, was aware of him because at that time, you know, you couldn't just get on, you know, Time Magazine cover for smashing watermelons or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. the cover of Time Magazine was, res it was really reserved for the likes of President Kennedy, uh, people like right. Dag Hammarskjöld and Winston Churchill. And so for this jazz musician to show up on the cover of, mag of Time Magazine was pretty extraordinary. It's a major feat, yeah. It was a major feat and everybody was aware of it. And so Danny thought that that might be a good idea. And um, I think my father thought it was a good idea too. I, I really do. I was away in private school at the time. Okay. I didn't even know about this recording until recent years. I didn't even know the concert took place personally. Okay. But when I think about what I knew my father was about. Yeah. And thinking about what was going on in the country, you know, because a lot of people have this silly idea that Monk was, you know, he was so deep and he was so immersed in his music that he wasn't really aware of the world going on around him. And anyone who really knows jazz musicians know that jazz musicians travel the world. Right. And if you travel the world and you don't have to be a jazz musician, you see a lot of things. And you become aware of a lot of things. Just from going north to south, you Just know? going north to south. In 1968, you yeah. You become succinctly aware of what's going on in your country. Yeah. You know? And so Thelonious, was, he was aware of what, what was happening uh, 
dynamically in terms of the in terms of the politics of the country, and so he made the gig. And uh, wow, the world is a better place for it because uh, this uh, this this kid uh, <clears throat> recorded this concert, and you know one of the things I noticed about my father, you know, and I'm familiar with all of his music and all of his records. Sure. And he's made some really, really great records, as many of his peers have made really, really great records. But, you know, uh, a guy like Monk, because of his somewhat scattered recording career, you know, he was on Blue Note, then he was off Blue Note, then he was on Prestige, and he was off Prestige, then he was on uh, Riverside, then he was off Riverside, then he was on, right. you know, Sony, then uh, CBS, then he wasn't. So... Because of that scattered sort of career, recording-wise, Thelonious's best performances were really live. And if you caught Thelonious on a really good oh, day live, yeah, it's just an extraordinary thing to to listen to. And I can tell all your viewers that Monk was feeling really, really good on this night, and he was thinking his brain was was had expanded beyond his skull. Wow. He, he was just playing some stuff, and the rest of the band was rocking too. Ben and who Riley is the rest of the band? Drums. Yeah, who else in the band? Ben Riley was playing drums. Okay. Uh, Larry Gales was on bass, and Charlie Rouse was on tenor saxophone, and uh, they were just rocking, man. They were just, they were just. When I heard the concert, you know, uh, before I even knew about the background story and the circumstance, but when I heard the concert, I said, "Oh wow, man, Daddy was like." <laughs> he was on. He was he in was the zone. He was. He in really zone. was. And I think part of it was because <clears throat> a lot of people were very skeptical that this 15-year-old kid could bring Thelonious Monk to Palo Alto. So what Danny Shear had to do essentially was tell people, "Well, come to the parking lot, and Monk will show up. And if he shows up, then everybody can buy their tickets." So and there that, was no guarantee at that point. Danny didn't no, even know. No. <laughs> it was just blind and, faith. And that's exactly what happened. There was a huge wow. crowd in the high school uh, parking lot. And um, when Thelonious showed up, everybody said, oh, wow, Monk's here. And so people came. And uh, it was a nice blend of white and African-American, the audience. And the level of enthusiasm for Thelonious, I think that shocked him. I think I don't think he expected in a place like Palo Alto. I mean, Palo Alto was not the center of the jazz universe, right? You know, at the time, and so I don't think he expected a big crowd, you know, or the the level of enthusiasm. But you can hear by the applause that the crowd just ate him up, and the band ate the crowd up, and it's just. A magic caught on stars aligned. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I want to unpack that a little bit. And by the way, everybody watching, uh, Gary from Winnipeg, hello to Gary Lavinia from Philly, hello, Lavinia, and Howie Petasevsky from South Florida, hello again. Let your friends know this is a jam session with none other than T.S. Monk. Um, so yeah, let's unpack that a little bit, uh, sure. T.S., because this is 1968, you yeah. know, protests, protests everywhere, okay, right. Um, yes, yeah, exactly right, right. And, Rights, you know, and in a lot of ways, kind of we feel the resonance of that today. Um, yeah. But yeah. back then, the I guess the residents of East Palo Alto um, were considering this name change. What was this name change from East Palo Alto to Nairobi? To Nairobi, okay. yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, it was a very Afrocentric time mm -hmm. in America. I mean, I personally got suspended. <laughs> I was in boarding school in Darien, Connecticut, and I got suspended because I went down to New York City and I got my I got an Afro cut. And yeah, when man. I came back to school, they said, uh, Thelonious, what's this? You know, wow, <laughs> it was ridiculous. But it sent me by. I remember I went down, you know, I couldn't, I just could not go home and tell my father that the school had objected to my haircut. <laughs> because, I, you know, they, they did not want me to do that. Right. I did not want to do that because I knew what his response would be. And so I went down to Grand Central Station, and I'll never forget there was a little Italian barber shop in Grand Central Station right there on the ground floor. And I went in there and the guy looked at me like I was an alien. Right. <laughs> and you said, and so, buzz so it off, man. So he doesn't get the ordinary shears. Right. He gets this hand clipper. Right. Like I'm, like I'm a sheep or something. Oh, man. something. And he, you know, chopped all my hair off and I went back to school and it was all forgotten about. But it was a very, very tough time. Yeah. And this is what the times we're talking about. The city wanted to change its name to Nairobi, you know, yeah. 10 times. And in walks this 15-year-old white kid to right. East Palo Alto. And he's putting up flyers, right, in the he's community. Putting up flyers, and the cops are telling him, uh, kid, uh, you better get home. It's wow. dangerous out here. Wow. And he said, what, what's the danger? What's the danger? And you know what the reality is? And this goes right to today. There was really no uh, danger in That's the black exactly community it, for exactly a white it. individual. It yes. never existed. I grew up in the black community initially, and there was just never any danger because I think the, the African-American community has always been like the Native American community, and that is that they've always welcomed people. So right. it didn't matter where you were from, uh, whether it was white settlers, you know, or African-Americans. And African-Americans were the same way. And so there was no danger for Danny Shear there. He knew that. You know, I know that as an African-American. But, uh, you know, the police are a different story. Right. And and this concert and the success of this concert is is absolutely proof. Um, so what happened to Danny Sure? Do we I mean I imagine he was a was he a big jazz nerd back then, a big jazz he fan? He was a total and, jazz nerd. Yeah, he had yeah. produced concerts with the likes of Ben Garaldi, okay, uh, ultimately Duke Ellington, wow, uh, uh Lionel Hampton, I believe. And Danny actually grew up to become the chief executive assistant to the great to the late great Bill Graham, right? And wow. so, he became, so he became very, very instrumental uh, in 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 developing the rock and roll, excuse me, the rock and roll culture that came out of California, that came out of the Fillmore East. Right. You know, everybody from Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holden Company to Jimi Hendrix and Sly and the Family Stone. And at the cool. same time, he still promoted jazz concerts on the side, you know? So uh, he, he became very, very successful and he's living in New York and we've become good friends. And uh, he's delighted because, you know, this uh, this tape, I think, languished in his basement or his attic for like 35 years, something like that, you know? And when he first presented it to me, it was at a time when I was busy with my own career Okay. Uh, there were all kinds of people coming at me with all kinds of tapes. When know. was this? Was this shortly after it was recorded? Or? No, this wasn't okay. until the mid 
Uh, the early 2000s. Okay, wow. You know? Uh, so it really sat for a while. Yes. It sat, well, he'd forgotten that it even existed. But when he saw it existed, he said, oh, wow, this is Monk. This is Monk Live. You know? And uh, when he so when he initially recorded me, I didn't blow him off. But, you know, I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And then I never really, really followed up. You know? And then uh, maybe about five years ago, he followed up. He came to New Jersey. And that's when I learned the backstory. And when I learned the backstory of this recording and combined that with how good the recording was, you know, the performance on yeah. the recording was. You have to remember, this was, I mean, this kid was not planning to make any records. You know what I'm right. saying? And Thelonious, Thelonious wasn't there to make a record. You know, so the janitor. Right, there's the, the other janitor. twist in the story. Yeah. The janitor was the recording engineer, and they recorded it on a little tape recorder, uh, just a little basic monaural uh, tape. And myself and my partner, Grand Mixer DXT, the guy who did the scratching on Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Cool. Uh, one All of right. the most brilliant. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Hip Hop Hall of Fame, but he happens to be one of the most brilliant engineers in the business and his restorative skills when it comes to these old recordings are just absolutely amazing. He and I actually worked on the Monk Coltrane and Carnegie Hall archival recording, which came out about 10 years ago on Blue Note. Wow, yes. It's now written to be the number number two, it's number two all-time sales behind Kind of Blue, you know? So I said, you know, when it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know? It so sounds impeccable, got, man. Oh, man, we he did such an incredible, I mean, we both worked on it, and he will tell you that, you know, oh, man, I needed Monk because the Monk's ears, blah, 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 blah. That's all I call it. Yeah. He restored this recording because he uh, had access and uh, knowledge to really the, uh, what I'd call the interior of some of the more current, technologies that one can use, you know, to separate things and isolate things and all those kind of things. And I've learned a great deal from him as to how to re restore these recordings. Uh, and he's a musician too, because he's a keyboard player. Ah, that helps. So we do these restorations from a musician's uh, uh, perspective, as opposed to a technical engineer. Right. So it sounds know. live. You mentioned that Thelonious Monk magic when he's live. This one, I agree, totally sounds live. I'm curious, though, why the janitor originally wanted to record it in the first place. And by the way, hello to Maureen. Hello to Gary. Hello to Karen. Again, let people know. Let us know where you're watching from. And if you have a question for T.S. Monk, go ahead and write in. If you want to let us know your favorite Thelonious Monk album, T.S. said it himself. The guy played on every label, classic al album after classic album. Let us know. We'll read it on air. But okay, how did how did why was the janitor recording the concert? Because the janitor, because the fifteen year old kid had no staff. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, in fact, on the recording, um, there was a, the piano stool itself. You know, Thelonious was a big guy. Yeah, and the piano stool itself was creaking right during okay. the whole recording. <laughs> And so that was probably the number one anomaly that we had to get rid of. We had to figure out, and it took us weeks. Just weeks to go through to and digitize out the squeaks. Yeah, oh, it took us weeks man. to find the software. Uh, and then it took us weeks to actually go through the recording 
uh, second by second to find the squeaks and see if we could eliminate them. It's the same kind of software. You know, when on TV, you know, there's, you know, like they're trying to listen to the voice of Osama bin Laden through a yeah, whole yeah. conversation. Right. Say, this is the recording. This is the CIA <laughs> recording. Well, it's that kind of software that we use. It wow. Was you guys went all out. All out. All out. Desqueakified and everything. I've heard, uh, just reading some of the press stuff, that uh, uh, this custodial worker offered to record, or he, he got permission to record in exchange for tuning the piano. Is that what happened? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. the, the whole thing is is there's really, some magic behind this one for sure. Uh, oh, there's absolutely some magic, you know. And when you talk to Danny, and you you understand because Danny will tell you, Danny Palo Alto was so divided. Yeah, Danny, his first actual interaction with uh, African Americans occurred at the Monterey Jazz Festival, right? He went to the Monterey okay, wow. Jazz Festival on his own, and he was stunned when he saw all these blacks and whites like having a good time and it, it, it just touched something inside of him. And I guess it said to him that this is the way the world should actually be. Amen to that. And he wanted to, he spent his career, you know, recreating that and, and working with so many great, both white and African-American artists, you know, as, as uh, an associate with Bill Graham. Wow. And uh, do so we know what happened to Danny. Do we know what happened to the janitor? Or we know his name. I think the janitor is. Yeah, I don't know his name right off the bat, but I think the janitor is still. I think he's still living, but I'm not quite sure because I've been doing so much other stuff. Yeah, you know, Universal and uh, Impulse have been taking care of of, of that because they've been lining up so many interviews and all <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, but um. <clears throat> Either he's, he, if it's not him, it's, it's one of his relatives is still Okay, okay. Yeah. very nice. And uh, you mentioned that there was some real musical magic on this uh, album. And yeah. I want to get into that in a minute. want to quickly let, uh, you know, you mentioned the 70s, T.S., and this is our latest print album. This would be uh, the summer 2020 album, all about fusion. We went all full out 70s on this. Got an interview with Chicory on the cover there. Um, uh, this has already been mailed to subscribers, people watching and listening. Um, but all of the content from this magazine has been turned into web articles that you can access with a digital subscription on jazzes.com. Right now, there's a special offer for just 99 cents for three months. You get unlimited digital access. Access. Plus, we'll unroll, enroll you uh, to receive our forthcoming print issue, which is all about the art of the album, collecting albums, listening to albums, producing albums, album cover art. And Thelonious Monk has had some great album cover art. That's coming out in September. Again, you sign up for the digital subscription now in September. You get the print uh, issue in your mailbox. Uh, hello also to Renee from Philly and Larry from Trenton. Uh, thanks for joining us. Like I say, please help us spread the word. This is a jam session. All right. T.S., the the music on this yeah. album it is absolutely swinging man yeah uh, first of all what uh what programmatically what was monk getting into in terms of tunage uh he was playing uh some well you needn't okay uh, some uh epistrophe which i think of was just released as a single wow. uh he's we just released i think friday a video of his performance of Don't Blame Me. And I have to say, if you love Monk, he he plays Don't Blame Me magnificently. And yeah. the video that was created to go with it 
is so appropriate. I mean, the cat just, he just heard stuff, man, that, I mean, he changed the music. You know, a lot of people think of Thelonious as the high priest of bebop. Right. You know, and I go with that. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. But beyond being the high priest of bebop, Thelonious was the father of modern jazz. And there's no question about it. Bebop was locked into writing new melodies on top of standard repertoire. And Thelonious came with a new harmonic vocabulary that opened up the ears of John Coltrane, opened up the ears of Miles Davis, opened up the ears of Bud Powell, and so many, many, many others. It was like somebody finally came with the, the key to the, to the jail and right. unlocked the door. And, you know, I tell young kids, no monk, no funk. <laughs> and it's very, very real. Like that. But, yes. You know, the, a, a lot of the harmonic innovations that Thelonious Monk brought along with his music, if you would have thrown him back 150 years, he'd have been locked in a tower or a dungeon somewhere. Because based on what the church, which dominated the music, uh, he was playing devil notes. Yeah. Devil chords and yes, devil rhythms, all yeah. of that kind of stuff, you know. And that's why I think there was so much angst when he showed up. People didn't quite understand it because they hadn't heard those sounds before. So naturally, you know, when human beings don't understand something, the first thing they say is that it's wrong. Right. You know, and so Monk was wrong for so many years. He played the wrong chords. His tunes were too simplified. Right. We find that his tunes, guys run away from Monk's tunes because they're so complex. You know, right. in reality, I often say that Thelonious is almost like, he's like the Stevie Wonder of jazz. You know, the guy that wrote the tunes that they're just so easy to listen to. You know, you understand them. I defy most, most jazz listeners. If I say, you know, uh, sing me Blue Monk, you know, they'll say da da dee dee boo boo doo da. A first grader can do it. Now, you know? if I say sing me, sing me ornithology, you know. So Thelonious had a way of 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 mastering melody. That was yes. he, he, melody was his thing. I once asked my father. I said, Dad, there are three elements of music. You have harmony, melody, and rhythm. Which is the most important? And his estimation. A haunting melody is just the is that that's the bottom line. That's what carries for say that's so simple, so simple, but so years. enduring. Yeah, it is it's so enduring. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't even have to tell people what that is. Everybody knows what that is, you know. So so he was just he was just ahead of his time. And when you're ahead of your time, it's very difficult to get appreciated. And so Thelonious, you know, uh, uh, had the same fate as many a genius has had yeah. on the planet Earth, you know. And people, when they're here, they don't really get Not it. Appreciate it. The yeah. Thing is, the minute they are gone, <laughs> the minute they are gone, the minute my father, the news went out that my father died, the entire jazz community beat a path to my mother's door. You think it flipped. You think there was switch no. was flipped and oh, wow. Everybody said, oh my God, Monk is gone. And and what year was that, T.S.? Huh? What, what year was that? What year was that? 
that was 1982, February 82. 82. Okay, right, right. You know, and um, and since then, yeah, since then, the street that my father grew up on, West 63rd Street in New York City, is Thelonious Fear Monk Circle. Wow. He got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He got a lifetime Grammy. He has a uh, uh, permanent exi uh, exhibition at the Smithsonian Institute. We just donated his piano to the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's got a posthumous Pulitzer Prize. You know, he's been lauded by three presidents, not only Bill Clinton, but George Bush and uh, Barack Obama with the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. And his namesake, the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, uh, became the most important and the biggest and most impactful jazz education organization that the world has ever seen. Absolutely. So has done even in death. You know, he's just proceeded on, you know, his his documentary, Straight No Tracer, changed the dynamic of jazz documentaries. All of a sudden they gotta get you gotta get real because month yeah. was real. You know, I All mean right. it goes on to his book, his his biography. I don't know if you read it by Dr. Robin Kelly. I know uh, Robin's work, sure. Uh, you know, his biography is just a Brilliant. wonderful, wonderful piece of work. And when you actually read his life story, you realize that Monk wasn't strange at all. He was a family man. He grew up in the church. You know, uh, he ran community centers as a kid. Yeah. You know, he was all over the place. He was writing music for everybody. You know, Mittens was just one stop for him. You know, right. So, you know, this this was a guy. This is it's a it's a great American. It's like a Horatio Alger story. This is a guy that was literally born in a log cabin in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina and made it to the cover of Time magazine. And for those of you who are not familiar with that Time magazine article, the the title of the article was so appropriate because the title of that article in Time Magazine was Thelonious Monk, Bebop and Beyond. Mm -hmm. And it's beyond, you know, because anyone familiar with Thelonious Monk, you really can't find a bunch of Bebop tunes in his catalog. I mean, Crevice Kelly is not Bebop. Epistrophe is not Bebop. Brown Midnight is not Bebop. Nothing feels strictly Bop, you know. It feels very much Monk, you know. it's He transcends it's, all of that. Yes. He wrote classic. He wrote classic melodies, you know. Right now, Thelonious is only number two to Duke Ellington as the most recorded composer in the history of jazz. And his composition, Round Midnight, is the most recorded tune in the history of jazz. And it's amazing because Duke wrote about 5,000 tunes. Yeah. And we have 100 tunes from Thelonious Monk. And it has, has, Isn't that something? had the same yeah. impact. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, it, we talk about his genius now as a musician, um, rightly so. But you, you mentioned something, you know, he was a family man. And, and I'm curious, you know, what memories you have of, of Monk as dad, you know, just something you remember, you know, holding a hand, crossing the street, that kind of thing. Uh, I, well, one thing I totally remember is being on his shoulders, walking up 63rd Street, which was on a little hill and he put me on his shoulders and he had gotten me a little, I had a Davy Crockett raccoon hat that yes. I used to put on 
and get on his shoulders. And he, should, he I, I always remember being on my dad's shoulders walking up the block. But then when I got big enough to walk myself, he was a really fast walker and he never slowed down. He never slowed down for me. So I'd be like running dad. after him up to the block. Uh, <laughs> he was incredible, an incredible pool and billiards player. Okay, he never cool. let me win a game. Right, and I, I said, you know, Dad, man, you just let once, me man. <laughs> never let me win a game. Never took he it easy. Ping pong player. I remember him. I remember one night, him and John Coltrane played sixty-one games of ping pong. Polonius <laughs> won fifty-nine. Oh, it right, was, yeah. It was it was ridiculous. But what I remember most is the genius of how he handled me hmm. and my sister. But me with music. And that is that he didn't mention music to me. Everybody else mentioned music. Do you play the piano? Are you going to play the piano? When are you going to play the piano? Do you know who your father is? Mm. I mean, that kind of stuff was coming at me from the time I was five years old because he used to take me everywhere. Right. And he didn't mention music to me. Never pressured it. Never pushed the, it. The genius was. He knew that if I was going to become a jazz musician, I was going to have to love it because it was a tough road to hoe. Yeah. And so, therefore, he was going to let me fall into it on my own, which I did. And when I fell into it on my own and I came to him at 15 years old, I said, Dad, I think I want to play the drums. He said, you're late, <laughs> right? <laughs> he says, you're late. And then he got out Blakey to give me a set of drums. Oh my God. And then he sent me to Max Roach's house. Oh man. He up Max and said, Max, you're the greatest drummer in the world. The kid wants to play drums and send him to your house. We only start with the best. Good. Yeah. You know? And um, and then he didn't say another word to me for the next five years on the subject of music. Wow. I was in my room, I was practicing, you I were was shedding. Studying, I was shedding. He didn't say one word until I was like 20 years old. He comes through the house and he's just walking through the house. I'm sitting in the living room watching some dumb stuff on TV. And he says, I was still living with him. And he says, you ready to play, man? And went to bed. Wow. Five days later, I'm on national television with him. <laughs> Swinging next to dad. That's the way to do it. You know, you found your own way, you know, I because. Found my own way. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I ran into, you know, because. For those viewers who don't know, in the early 80s, I was an R&B artist, you know, and I had a couple of hit records. Mm -hmm. And there were people who were upset with me that, you know, I'm Monk's son and I'm playing that dance music. And some of them were pretty vocal about it, mm -hmm. you know. But you know who was delighted that me and my sister had hit records? Thelonious Monk. Dad, yes. Just because... I had figured out how to do it on my own. On your own, with your own voice. I mean, as a parent, that's all you can hope for. It had nothing to do yeah. with what he yeah. was doing. And I did a good job because when I was about eight years old, he had told me one day in the airport, he said, you know, there are people who are going to tell you that you got to be this and you got to be that. Right. And you don't have to be none of that. I love you. And that's that. End the story, you know? And he said, you know, actually... You can be the garbage man, as long as you're the best garbage man. I'm 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 cool with it. You know, oh, so, that's beautiful. so I never had that cloud that yeah. a lot of children or famous people that 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 
feeling that you're not able to be yourself because of who your father is. I never had that feeling. My sister never had that feeling. And so I had a good time. And once I got on the van stand with him, well, it was the same it was, it was for John Coltrane or Art Blakey or Max Roach or Johnny Griffin or Charlie Rouse. It was a magic carpet ride playing with Monk. Yeah. And it was the best, the best time I ever had on the bandstand. Would he come up to you and ever, you know, hey, you know, you should have done this differently, or he he let you do your thing. Now, he let me do my thing, but you know, that generation, <laughs> you know, as I was saying earlier, there was no such thing as a young lion, you know, so they were very hard. And I remember one time we were playing a tune, a tricky tune of his called, if his, uh, excuse me, called Evidence, right? Yeah. And it's actually, that's actually a tune. I think it's based on Just You, Just Me. Okay. Okay. And it's it's really got some really tricky rhythms. And we were playing it in the Vanguard. And if anybody's familiar with the Village Vanguard, you know, they had a kitchen, but they didn't have no food. So <laughs> it was just a hang. That's where the musicians would hang. It was the hang, yeah. right? Yeah. And so so we played this set, man. And I got I got it turned around for a minute. Uh -oh. now, now I recovered. Okay. I recovered. That's all that matters, right? Okay. But we came off the bandstand and I'm in the kitchen and I'm signing autographs, right? And people are congratulating me, right? Because the music sounds so great, which was monk. It wasn't me, it was my father. But I'm signing autographs. And right there with people right next to me, and he didn't say it quietly. He came up to me and he got in my ear and uh, he used an expletive, which I won't use, but essentially he said, stop messing up the music, man. Ooh. <laughs> you know, now the, the object lesson, the object lesson was not that I had messed up because I recovered, which is what you're supposed to do. Jazz, right, right. Paint yeah. yourself in corners and recovering. What it was, was the lack of respect on my part when I came off the bandstand to say to him, and the other musicians that, hey, man, I know I blew it there. Accountability. 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 Still. Cats, they they ignore that on the bandstand. Right, right. For his generation, you didn't ignore that. You do that. You talk about it. You say, hey, listen, I know I blew that. I won't do it next time. I'm really sorry about that. And so he was 100% right. And it didn't matter who I was talking to. And it didn't matter how good I was feeling. Because he was serious about the music. And I love him for that because those kind of object lessons, I talked to Max Roach. I talked with Roy Haynes. I talked with Ben Riley. I talked with other drummers that worked with Thelonious. And he was the very same way with them as mm. he was with me. Uh, you know, I remember asking my father before the first year, are we going to rehearse? And he said, uh, you know the music, don't you, man? Right? <laughs> And it's all ben it takes. Ben Riley said the same thing. Yeah. Roy said the same. He said the first time he worked with Monk, Monk just started playing. Sink or swim. Sink or swim with Monk. That's how you did it. You know, yeah, pass down knowledge on the bandstand, school yeah. of the bandstand. Very and cool, I, man. I, I love him for that because he made sure that I was doing it because I loved it. And uh, here I am at 70 years old and I'm still doing it, still got my band, still making records. So he was right. That's amazing to hear, man. That was all incredible to hear. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, Antonio Hart, thank you for tuning in, man. Hello, Antonio. Oh, Antonio. Antonio. 
They say he was on the show. One of the baddest cats in the world. Absolutely. Oh man. Oh man. Hundred percent. I love that man. Thanks for staying alive. And hello to Tim Ross watching from Landing, Michigan. Hello to Tim. All right. Hey, uh, TS, we will wrap just by talking about this album itself, because like I said, we're all excited for it to come out July 31st. Um, Digital, uh, physical, vinyl, how's it it coming out? It's coming out on CD. Okay. Coming out on vinyl. Uh, It's coming out on that black vinyl, uh, heavy gauge. And then it's also coming out in an orange collector's item. Oh, cool. version and it has a booklet uh recounting the whole uh story and it also has a poster uh from the original concert uh and it has uh it, I, it has something else there's, there's a lot of good stuff the package is good the package is good with the vinyl absolutely and you'll get pretty much the same stuff in the um in the CD version and uh from what I heard I think I think at least the orange vinyl is is, is gone, and oh, wow. uh, so it's moving so, fast, people. Moving you got to reserve your copy now. And this is this is what I'd say to your listeners: if you love Monk, then you need to have this recording in your Monk collection. All of you, thousands of Monk fans out there, you know, I'm I'm fortunate. My father, I'll tell I'll tell your fans something that Thelonious did that was really extraordinary. In 19, I think it was 1961 or 1960, yeah, Thelonious put all his music in his own publishing company, everything that he owned and everything he would write from there okay. forward. And he put that company in me and my sister's name. Wow. He didn't even own the music. He put the music in me and my sister's name when I was really like 10 years old, nine years old. And that was because he knew what America was about. Yeah. He and my mother had been married in North Carolina uh, uh, by an African-American preacher. And at that time, you know, uh, in the late uh, 40s, a lot of those, uh, the black church was not recognized okay. in many quarters in this country. Right. And so a lot of those marriages were not recognized. And, uh, and, and the court system, right, uh, used the court, used, the court system was used to disenfranchise heirs of many African Americans' right. children wow. because Oh well, your parents weren't married. Right, that right. belongs to the state, you know. And mm. so he wanted to make sure, no matter what happened, didn't need a will, didn't need nothing. Right. No, we own it. And so that family me, that has allowed me a lot of a great deal of freedom, you know. And uh, you know, so I'm in partnership with uh, with uh, Universal as opposed to having you know like a record deal and a you know, a little royalty and that kind of right. thing. And we have a very good pro- partnership in terms of promoting this record. And my goal, as it has been for the 28 years I was the chairman of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, is to push the music and to push my father's legacy. Because my father, see, I've had a very, very good time. I got to see 
and smell all those roses from the walk on Hollywood and the naming of the street and all that. Yeah, right. He didn't get a chance to see any of that mm. stuff. I've had a chance to have the, the income that his music has generated over all these years. And so I feel that I have to make sure that Thelonious takes his proper seat in the pantheon of great composers in the history of Western music. It's not as simple as jazz. It right. can't confine him to jazz. Yes. It translates jazz. So many of his ideas, uh, his harmonic ideas are commonplace tonight. That goes back to what I was saying about no, no, monk, no, no, no monk, funk. You know, <laughs> and everybody just thinks, oh man, them, oh, that chord there. Yeah, man, that's cool. Let's go with that. And they don't know what Thelonious, you know, most of his career, he was criticized. Right. Even after on the cover of Time magazine, he was still criticized because a lot of people didn't get it. Uh, the funny thing is that, <laughs> you know, it's like the people, you know, I remember when Michael Jordan was at North Carolina, right? Okay. Uh, the man, the man was James Worthy. That was the guy on the team that was. Right. <laughs> but everybody today will tell you, oh, I knew Michael Jordan was going to be the greatest basketball player of all time. And they're all lying because they don't want to say that they missed the ball. <laughs> that they slept on Michael back and in the day. Same thing with yeah. Monk. Nobody yeah. wants to say they slept on Monk, but that's good because he deserved that because he loved everyone and he wanted his music to be music for the world. He didn't consider himself a jazz musician. That was something right. that, you know, pundits. The and media, the label. Yeah, the they, label, they dropped it on him. Yes. But he was really an American classical musician because that is our classical music. Jazz is that, and it's revered all over the world. You know, we sponsored uh, at the Monk Institute International Jazz Day. We began that tradition. And uh, we found that jazz is the only genre, the only genre that is played in every country in the world, because jazz is about humanity. Jazz is about who are you? And Universal you language. Learn yes. to tell your story. Yes. Whatever your story is. So the man in Harlem, his story is slightly different from the man in, say, Indonesia, you know? And the man in, the, in Indonesian jazz is slightly different from Indian jazz, which is slightly different from the jazz in South America, which is different from the jazz in Brazil, you know? And But it's about being yourself, you know, the... Uh, those basic principles, right, that, you know, we have uh, crystallized in our constitution in this country, all men are created equal, you know, things like that. Everybody has something right. to say, right? you know, everybody is welcome. All of those principles are embodied in this, this musical genre we call jazz. That's and that's it. why I've always said to the funders that say, oh, well, jazz is dying, oh, jazz is Jazz is never going to die. It is never going to die because there will always be musicians who want to tell their story through their music. Now, right. vocal music will always be number one because people like to talk. Right. But after they like to talk, they like to listen. And yes. when people like to listen, they want to listen to jazz. It's a conversation. It's a democratic conversation. The bandstand is a democracy. Uh, yes, man, it's... T.S., I cannot thank you enough for helping to continue and protect your father's legacy. You hit the nail on the head. If you are a serious Monk fan, you need this album in your collection. You 
You got to have it. Yeah. It's coming out on the Great Impulse Records. We should mention, um, sure. you know, as a, as a long, you know, great legacy in jazz. Um, and you, you know, liner notes by Danny Shear, by Robin D G Kelly. I think has some liner notes. Yeah. You, you, you contribute. Yeah. You, write, you write anything? Uh, no, I didn't write anything because you know, I said I'm, you know, I'm handling the production. There you go. You know, to have Robin G D Kelly, who wrote his biography, write the liner notes and yeah. really put the concert in context, you know, relative to the times, uh, was a wonderful thing. And the concert is right on time, right now yes. in America. You know, it's connected. And that was the other thing. I, timing is everything. And it is connected to what's happening today. Because actually, the beginnings of what's happening today that those were the beginnings back in 1968. See, everybody, everybody kind of got a little lazy and thought thought the battle was over. No, that was where it all began. Yeah, that's where the, the really the second civil rights movement in America, because there was a, another one back in the 1870s uh, called uh, Reconstruction uh, that was killed by Jim Crow, the Jim Crow era. Uh, you know, but in 1968. Everybody, you know, black kids, white kids, uh, people from all all corners of life in America started saying, you know, there's something wrong here. There's some injustice mm -hmm. going here. We've got a constitution. It says we're all created equal and we're not created equal. And these things take time. So here we are 50 years later and the people are back in, in power's face, except this time it's all the people. Right. You know, right. and jazz is always been about all the people. So I'm delighted that we can bring this recording, this particular recording with this particular backstory to light right now. Yeah. It helped heal us back then. It'll help heal us now. Um, it's a beautiful record. It's a beautiful record. T.S., man, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show, the last call tonight, and talking to us about it. This has been an absolute pleasure, man. I mean that sincerely. Uh, I, I love it. Anytime. Thank you so much. I'll see you backstage and I'll sign off for people watching okay. at home. But thank you. Cheers to you, man. Bye. Wow. So thank you to T.S. Monk for joining us on The Last Call to talk about, again, a previously unreleased Thelonious Monk album coming out July 31st. It's called Palo Alto. It's coming out on Impulse Records. You are going to want to buy this album. I promise you there's something magical about this album. Uh, thanks to Jay for tuning in, saying hello, to Vedalise for tuning in to say hello, and everyone else who uh, tuned in during the show to let us know where you're watching from. Uh, again, we do these every weeknight at 8.30 p.m., so feel free. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on YouTube. Hit that uh, subscribe button, that notification bell, so you know that we're going live. All right, that will do it for me today on The Last Call. I'm going to close down the bar. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I'm Brian Zimmerman. Thanks for watching, everyone. So long.